Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hello, my self-lovers. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure that you're giving yourself the gift of self-love. Now, if you don't know what the gift of self-love is, it's a workbook that will help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. And it's now available in stores and online worldwide. Oh my goodness, I've been waiting to say that because I've been working on this book for years. I poured my heart and soul into it, compiling everything that I teach at my retreats and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is this book is a combination of me sharing my life story and everything that's helped me on this self-love journey, including body acceptance, and it's a workbook that you can actually write in. So every single thing that I share, you can put into practice right away. There are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body image, confidence, self-worth, and self-love. I'm holding it right here. It's right in front of me and it's absolutely gorgeous. Not to toot my own horn or anything, but we've nailed the design on this one. It makes such a wonderful gift both for yourself and for your loved ones. Perhaps you have a friend that could really use this message and that, you know, needs a little push, loving push in the right direction. And I think that this book is just a great gift. Hence, the gift of self-love. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you can get it today by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. I'm certain that the tools I share in this book will change your life as much as they've changed mine. So again, that's maryscupoftea.com slash book and give yourself the gift of self-love. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Mary's Cup of Tea, the podcast. Today, I am with my friend. Can I call you my friend? Are we friends now? Of course. Oh my gosh, Amanda. Amanda Montel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am not one of those no new friends people. You know what I mean? I'm just like, yes, welcome to the fold. (laughs) Well, I am honored because low-key, I've been wanting to be a part of your circle for a few months now. We actually... (laughs) We actually got connected through a mutual friend, my friend Zoe Marshall. And I'm so happy that we did because you are up to some incredible things. I read your book. I consumed it in less than 24 hours. It changed my life. And I actually talked about it on like two days ago. I had like a podcast interview for the launch of my book. And instead of talking about my book, I talked about your book. (laughs) Like no joke. I bow down to you. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for those of you who may not be familiar with you, I'm just going to read your bio. Amanda Montel is a writer and language scholar from Baltimore. She is the author of two books, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, about the language of cults from Scientology to Soul Cycle, and that'll be out in 2021 by HarperCollins, and the critically acclaimed Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language, which is also published by HarperCollins in 2019. That's the book that I was referring to that I absolutely love. You have to go pick it up right now. Word Slut has earned praise from the New York Times, Time Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, Kirkus Reviews, and Publishers Weekly, amongst others. And Amanda is currently developing the book for television and FX studios, serving as a creator, writer, and executive producer. 
As a reporter and essayist, Amanda's writing has been featured in Marie Claire, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Nylon, The Rumpus, Birdie, and Who, What, Where, where she firmly served as the features and beauty editor. She holds a degree in linguistics from NYU and lives in Los Angeles with her partner, Plants and Pets. I love that. <laughs> you can find her on Instagram at, at Amanda underscore Montel. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm so excited to talk about um, just this combination and, and also the, the bridge between word slut, which is how I know you in the linguistics field, and cultish, which is also about language and how we use it, but also how it can get a little culty. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've come to realize that my, my beat, my kink, whatever you want to call it is the relationship between language and power. And so Mm -hmm. in my first book, I, I talk about language and power as it relates to sex and gender. And in cultish, I talk about language and power as it relates to cults which are a lifelong fascination of mine. I went to school for linguistics. I always grew up fascinated by language, foreign languages, accents. I was always fascinated by a field that I would come to discover is called sociolinguistics, which is basically the relationship between how we speak and how we move through the world. So I was always interested in how a person talks can affect the way that they're perceived or the way that they access power or cultivate an identity, cultivate a personality, you know, why like a British accent is perceived as so prestigious and fancy, but the Baltimore accent is perceived as well, <laughs> actually nothing because nobody can recognize what a Baltimore accent is. Fun fact, that is because nobody who has a Baltimore accent goes off and makes movies about it like say Matt Damon made the Boston accent sort of household accent. Now we all recognize it, but nobody ever makes movies about the Baltimore accent. It's pretty ugly. (laughs) Wait, so what is it? Do you have it? Oh my gosh. Well, no, if, if I'm around a bunch of Baltimoreans, Baltimoreans, as we say, (laughs) then some qualities will come out. But basically, if you think about where Baltimore is geographically, it's like, right on the cusp. Oh my God, now I'm speaking astrology. It's right on the cusp of like (laughs) the tri-state area, but also the South, but also like it's sort of near Ohio. So what you get is basically some features of like a New Jersey accent, but also kind of a Southern drawl. It's really weird. (laughs) Okay. So is like how you talk like Baltimore-ish? No, 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 definitely not. Because I'm very conscious not to use any of the qualities. But whenever I hear it in the wild, it always like, it's very nostalgic for me. But for example, like the Baltimore O is very famous. So instead of saying home or road, we would say home or road. Oh, like that. Home. It's like, oh. <laughs> we also have the short A split, which is something you would hear in like New Jersey English or New York English, where instead of saying glad, we would say glad. Mm. I literally couldn't even put a sentence together. Oh, but my boyfriend kind of has it because we went to high school together. We have not been dating since high school, but we did go to high school together. And sometimes I'll make fun of him because he pronounces towel, towel, oh. and he pronounces water, water. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny one. I did not expect to go off on a tangent about the Baltimore accent, but I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad at all. I didn't even know Baltimore had an accent. And now I feel like so much more cultured. Well, but yeah, so obviously, I love to nerd out about like the little minutia of language, but also the big picture too. Um, And so word slut is about the relationship between language and gender, you know, how gender like subtly 
infiltrates the way that we speak and the way that we perceive others' speech. Mm-hmm. And so word slut is basically this like quick and dirty crash course in feminist sociolinguistics showing, you know, readers who might know nothing about linguistics, all of these really fascinating empirical studies, but presented in like a fun, accessible way to make them feel empowered to own their voices in a culture that so often aims to silence women and other marginalized genders. So in Wordslut, there are chapters about the history of gendered insults in English and how we can reclaim or abolish them. There's a chapter about our history of genitalia slang. There's a chapter defending reviled characteristics in young women's speech like uptalk and vocal fry and saying like every other word and talking about why those qualities actually have a really interesting and provable social purpose. And they're not as ditzy as they sound. So it's it's that sort of thing. And then The cult stuff came pretty naturally to me because I grew up fascinated by cults, um, mostly because of my dad, who spent his teenage years in a notorious Bay Area cult against his will, a cult called Synanon. And so, yeah, that that book is, is less a linguistics book. It's not really a linguistics book. It's about language because language is like the lens through which I see the world. But it's a book about the social science of cult influence. Like we all are so many of us are obsessed with cult documentaries and memoirs and movies and stuff like that. But none of them ever really provide a satisfying answer for why people join fanatical fringe groups, why people stay. Could it happen to you? Could it happen to me? And, you know, the answer that the media and prevailing wisdom will offer is like, oh, those people are brainwashed. They're desperate. They're naive. They were mind controlled. But that's not true. That's that's a myth. That's pseudoscience. What's really going on are these techniques of conditioning and coercion that have everything to do with language. And so in the book, I describe these techniques of cultish language, this language I'm calling cultish, you know, like English or Spanish or Swedish, but cultish, and how (laughs) these techniques have worked in groups as notorious as Jonestown and Heaven's Gate and Scientology, but also kind of how they imbue our everyday lives, our soul cycle studios, our Instagram feeds, our startup offices. Um, mm-hmm. That's the sort of thing where it's like, once you understand what the language of cultish sounds like, you won't be able to un- unhear it. So that's kind of what, what cultish is all about. <laughs> I cannot wait to read that book. Well, one, I feel like if I were to go back in time and realize how much I love language and linguistics, I would probably pursue a very similar degree and career path to you because I mean, my first language is Russian. I grew up speaking Russian. I'm from the Bay Area, moved to Arizona, lived in Canada. (laughs) So I have always been just really, I don't know, like language has always been a big part of my life. I studied French in high school for five years. And right now it's primarily English and Russian. But it is very interesting. Like one thing I've noticed about myself, backtrack two years ago, my boyfriend is also Russian, but like I'm Russian from Moscow and he's Russian from the former Soviet Union. So there's some differences and whatever language and otherwise. But when we first started dating, we went on a trip to Italy. And when we were in Italy, for whatever reason, when we travel, our minds just like flip a switch and we speak only Russian to each other. Whereas we don't do that when we're in the States. <laughs> it's weird. Oh my God, that's so interesting. Yeah, Our brains just like, change, especially in public, right? I don't know what it is. So anyways, we were speaking Russian. We were pretty fresh. We're in Italy dating like six weeks and we're speaking Russian and we start fighting a lot. Like 
fighting. And I called my mom saying, I don't know if this is going to work. Like it was dramatic. It was a disaster. And it came down to, he was like, well, I noticed that when you speak Russian, you're very like demanding and bitchy. And I'm like, well, I've noticed when you speak Russian, you're a fucking dick. <laughs> um, That's so funny because, well, I wonder, first of all, and this is the type of thing that like you could write a thesis about oh, yeah. as a linguistics major. Like I didn't end up writing an honors thesis because I wanted to graduate early. But anyways, if I had written an honors thesis, I wanted to write about like Baltimore English and Pittsburgh English, mm-hmm. basically like Maryland and and Pennsylvania English, like these nerdy niche things about language that you never think are like studyable, but they are. But that's so interesting. I wonder if you started speaking Russian outside of the country as a way to sort of like distance yourself from Americans, because like in in Europe, Americans aren't perceived as as, um, such a flattering light. For sure. But yeah, like different parts of your personality totally come out when you're speaking different languages. Like I speak Italian and everybody is always remarking about how much more like innocent and sunshiny mm. I seem when I speak Italian. I guess because like my sass doesn't really come out. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. For me, it's the opposite. My sass like is like tenfold when I'm in Russian and I speak very loud and aggressively and almost like what you would see in the movies from like a stereotypical yeah. Russian woman because it starts off as like, oh, it's a joke. I'm stereotyping my own culture. Like we're laughing, haha. Mm. And then it actually like, becomes real and you're like okay (laughs) maybe too far that is so that's so interesting I mean every like culture and language are inextricable right they go hand in hand and so I think like the push-pull of the language and like the stereotypes and the personality of its speakers there's definitely a relationship there and I think maybe like with Italian it's such a musical language yeah like a flamboyant language that maybe you know it doesn't have as many like curt terse consonants so maybe I just seem like more loosey-goosey when I speak it I don't know but those are such fun questions but clearly you uh you figured it out <laughs> Yeah. So, well, it came down to we like stopped speaking Russian for a while and then we revisited. And now we basically only joke around in Russian. Like if we're trying to joke or be like flirty, cute slash sexy, but we won't have like a legitimate serious conversation in Russian because that ends up going south. That's a form of code switching. I know that uh, conversations about code switching have really come to the forefront over the past year, um, mostly talking about code switching between quote unquote standard American English and African American English or African American vernacular English. You know, last year during Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, it was like coming out for the first time, like things you you learn about as a linguistics major that a lot of the times speakers of African American English will code switch into standard American English depending on the context or the space that they're in, in order to, you know, access power, protect themselves, or, you know, sometimes it's, it, it feels necessary, even though it's not just um, because of the larger culture's perception of African American English, even though there are some qualities of African American English, which is a systematic dialect, that are much more clever and useful than anything we have in standard American English, certain verb tenses, whole verb tenses that we don't even have. And by we, I mean, boring standard American English speakers. But code switching is really whenever anyone switches language forms in the middle of a discourse. Mm -hmm. So like when you and your boyfriend are going back and forth between English and Russian, like to 
you know, create a certain mood or flirt or joke or whatever. Like, uh, I just love that stuff. I took a bilingualism class in college where we learned a lot about bilingual code switching. And I was just like, what a shame for people who only speak one or very few language varieties that you can't like access this whole other world or this whole other personality that can be cultivated with language. Mm. No, that's fascinating. You make me want to go back to school. The best piece of advice I've ever received, I was at like a Christmas party for this couple that I was babysitting for. And they had like a person from Africa, he was black, but like actually African black, not like American and traveled all over the world, like Europe, Asia, anywhere, South America, anywhere you can think of. And I remember he came up to me, I was probably like 14, 15 years old. And the party was because his daughter just graduated law school. So he takes me by the shoulder and he's like, Mary, I've got to tell you, learn as many languages as possible because languages are the key to people's hearts and souls, the key to understanding people. And that always just really landed with me. So I try to, you know, practice my Russian as often as possible so that I don't lose it. I'm very adamant on my children. I don't know. How, do you feel the same way about Italian? Like, do you have this like very strong connection to it? I do. I mean, I didn't grow up speaking it. I learned it as a teenager. Um, but I often say it's like my favorite thing about myself that I speak Italian. Like it's precious to me. And whenever I lose, I feel myself getting rusty. Um, it really just is like a dark cloud over my whole life. So <laughs> yeah, I totally agree that that guy should write a book. Yeah, <laughs> But it's so true. And the fact that we are Americans really just like white Americans, I guess, are so rigid and so like territorial about English. I mean, we're like one of the only nations that's like that, that doesn't value bilingualism or learning other languages. And in fact, like judges it and censures it when really it should be celebrated. And I guess there are pockets of the United States that really, really are very bilingual, like LA a little bit, Miami very much so. Like in Miami, you enter an establishment, they'll speak to you in Spanish first, which I think is so cool. Like, I think it's such a shame that our country, which doesn't have an official language, by the way, there is no official language of the United States. You think it would be English, but it's actually not. We don't have one. I don't even know what I'm saying. I just, I agree with you. I value bilingualism so much. Um, oh, I was going to say actually that my family is from Belarus, like generations back, former Soviet Union. But I sadly can only say one thing in Russian, which is spasiba. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Love it. So going back to like the language of cults, you mentioned Soul Cycle. And without giving away too much of your book, because clearly that is a piece that pulls so many of us in, what I talk about a lot is diet culture and how diet culture brainwashes us. And I would argue that the word cult is in culture. So there are some culty aspects of any kind of culture that we can encounter. And one of those is like fitness culture, gym culture, diet culture, weight loss culture. Like those are all such big narratives in our daily lives and have been for a few decades now. I would say yeah. like they got really big in what, the 80s. What have you found in your research about Soul Cycle? Is it related to diet culture? Can you talk about it without giving away too much of the book, which is going to be out or it might already be out by the time this interview airs? Yeah, for sure. So 
like you were saying, I think that the boundaries between religion, cults, and culture are super hazy, super permeable. I mean, the word cult didn't always have such dark undertones back in the day. I mean, the word cult comes from the Latin word meaning homage paid to divinity or like offerings to win over the gods. And the words culture and cultivation are derived from the same Latin root. And over time, you know, cult came to describe a bunch of different things. At once, it was just really like a religious classification alongside a word like sect. And then it came to describe sort of, you know, socio-spiritual weirdos, but not necessarily like evil people or, or anything sinister. It really wasn't until this era that some people call the fourth great awakening, like the late 60s and 70s, when so many cult-like groups emerged, New Agers, Christian offshoots, and in particular, the, the Jonestown Massacre. It really wasn't until the Manson killings of the late 60s and the Jonestown Massacre of the late 70s, when cult really became this like nationwide symbol of fear. And so now the word, well... <sighs> The etymology and history of the word cult is really interesting because it corresponds precisely with our culture's relationship with community and identity and spirituality. And in the 21st century, that relationship has gotten really weird <laughs> because, you know, yes, we have this really dark, sinister definition of cult as it relates to the Jonestowns and the Heaven's Gates and the Mansons, but also we have so many like secular fringe cult-like groups like the Soul Cycles and the CrossFits and diet culture and so many online groups, you know, spiritual influencers, incels, you know, what have you. Um, and that has to do with the fact that our culture at large is really moving away from mainstream religion. But a lot of these fitness studios have become our new sites of community and spirituality. So they're really fulfilling a religious role in our lives, something that we're sorely lacking. Like, particularly white Americans have this like community void <laughs> where we, you know, we don't have a built in, like tight knit culture to rely on, especially during turbulent times. And so sometimes we wind up turning to brands or influencers to fill that void. And that can get really sketchy because a lot of the time these brands and whoever we're, we're turning to like don't have our best intentions in mind. They're profit-driven, image-driven companies. And the diet industry and the fitness industry is... There are some pros to the fitness industry, obviously, you know, SoulCycle diehards, CrossFit diehards, they can't be compared to like Scientologists, of course, like the stakes and consequences of these quote unquote cults aren't the same. And they'll say, you know, like SoulCycle feels more safe to me, more accepting to me than the church I grew up in. But at the same time, whenever you like worship someone on the level of a god or a pastor or a guru power abuses can follow. And the diet industry and the fitness industry are, are really good at elevating people to this like godlike status in a way that can be really damaging for others. You know, the celebrities and the, you know, hotshot instructors that we see in front of us with their like glistening muscles and, and just the, the fashion and the standards, the, the, the body standards and the, you know, just beauty standards in general can be really damaging because 
they're not just beauty standards. Like they, they have these like spiritual stakes attached to them. And like as Americans, we fetishize self-improvement. Like we really, really value ideals of of individualism and perseverance and ambition. And the fitness industry like really, really taps into that in a sometimes damaging way. Yes. Yes. There are so many different components to it. Like what I'm hearing you say is it's it's a combination of just being humans and and wanting and craving community and connection. And then this aspect of neoliberalism, which is very much like a byproduct of capitalism and the idea that we constantly have to be improving ourselves. And if that we work hard, you know, we'll get all our hopes and dreams. And that combined with just certain things that our society values at this particular point in time, which is how things look, whether it's like a body or an Instagram photo or the car you drive or whatever it is, like all these things kind of come together to create this desired like ideal that is like you said, nearly idolized as a, as a god or a religion, and then have people that follow it consistently and it follows them even outside of that setting, i.e. like we're thinking about it, we're planning for it, we make it a part of our identity, and all those things kind of come together to form something that when taken to extremes can be very harmful and toxic to our individual mental health and as a society. That was such a succinct and perfect way of putting it. <laughs> I like monologue so hard and that, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's, that's exactly it. And I don't want to be, I don't want to sensationalize, you know, and in the book, I'm very careful not to equate groups like, you know, the Jonestowns and the Mansons, quote unquote, classic cults with these secular cult-like communities. But really what I'm aiming to do is, is show that cultish influence surrounds us. And there is not a difference between like, oh, those desperate, disturbed, brainwashed cult followers who get involved with QAnon or whatever. And, you know, I'm so discerning and I'm so, you know, well-adjusted. That would never happen to me. It's like, to some degree, we're under cultish influence all the time. And my book aims to sort of highlight the uh, linguistic red flags. Not to say like, you should not involve yourself in communities. Like, we're communal by nature, like to disengage from any type of community or belief system, I think would ruin the like most magical parts of being a human being. Like it's not natural. Um, but I think we need to go into some of these sort of culty groups with that like twinkle in the back of our brain that's telling us like, there's some degree of of make believe here and bullshit here. And we need to be both mm. skeptical and open-minded at the same time. And something really interesting that I discovered while writing the book is that some of history's like smartest minds, like Carl Sagan, you know, scientists or the ages, when analyzed for their personality qualities, had this remarkable balance between open-mindedness and conscientiousness. So Carl Sagan in the 70s was one of the first people to accept the idea that there might be intelligent life outside of planet Earth, which was like a really sort of culty sounding idea at the time. But he wasn't so open minded that he was willing to accept the much more outlandish idea that UFOs had already landed on Earth, you know, so I think it's important to be open to certain, you know, ideologies and communities, because like, who doesn't want to better themselves? Like, who doesn't want to connect with other people? And if all these cultish groups are 100% evil, nobody would ever want to get involved with them or stay. 
at the same time, I think it's important to surround ourselves with like multiple, maybe get involved with like multiple cultish groups or surround ourselves with multiple forms of influence so that we can ultimately make the healthiest decision about what we want to participate in and to what extent. Yeah. It's kind of like if you're investing in the stock market, you're going to diversify so you don't put all your eggs in one basket and then lose it all and go crazy and lose your sanity. Instead, you're going to experiment some stuff. There's going to be some ups and downs, but hopefully in the long run, your portfolio is going to grow. I was going to say, like diversify your spiritual and social portfolio. (laughs) Mm, Love that. I love that so much. No, it's truly what I love, love the most about your writing, your writing style, and then the topics that you write about is that obviously these are very difficult concepts. And just as a caveat, like I will be the first person to go to Soul Cycle after this pandemic. Like I've always wanted to go to a class. I think it's so cool. It's so fun. Like not hating on on certain groups or or influencers or or things that kind of suck us in. But like you said, there has to be this level of conscientiousness and like, is this harming me? Am I getting obsessive? And, and that's really what I what I try to teach through this podcast is it's I'm not telling you not to exercise or never eat a green vegetable in your entire life because you're brainwashed by diet culture. It's like, no, it, you, you take what really, really works and feels good for you and what you truly enjoy and then discard the stuff that is ultimately garbage. Exactly. Exactly. It's sort of like unpacking that conditioning so that you can better decide, like, do I want to engage with green vegetables? <laughs> and if so, like, uh, to what degree? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh my God. I, this makes me feel like so grateful. Well, I'll say this, like before I was like a language author, I guess I worked as a beauty editor, like a beauty and wellness editor. And now that I've had distance from that, I can really see how cultish that was. And I knew it while I was in it. Like you're surrounded by so much conformity. And speaking of cult language, like everybody just adapts to the same kind of like creative corporate bullshit gibberish dialect, you know, like talking about synergy and holistic and like actualizing deliverables and blah, blah, fucking (laughs) blah. And I was like, this is so creepy. Like, why why is everybody dressing the same? Why is everybody talking the same? Why is everybody's hair color the same? And I'm kind of like a skeptic and you know, authority averse <laughs> by nature. And yet that shit got to me, you know? Like I was very very image concerned when I was in that world. And having some space from it, I'm just like, damn, like they even got me. They even got me. <laughs> And now I'm just like so grateful not to be in that world where just so much pressure is on your appearance, your hair color, your your fitness. Even though I was just a writer, you know, I was just like a magazine, like staff writer and editor, but still like my appearance was so crucial to my job for some reason. And now like the pandemic and being out of that world and everything has given me the the choice to reacquaint with my natural hair color. And I'm just like, that's crazy. I used to have nightmares that like my highlights disappeared. That's so fucked wow. up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Like the corporate world it, yesterday, my partner got off a call and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what was that call? Whatever. And he's like, oh, we had our water cooler session. And I'm like, your water cooler oh session? God. And granted, he's in the startup venture capitalist world right Mm -hmm. so I'm like you mean like if you were at an office you would like 
chit chat near the water cooler. And he's like, yeah, I guess that's what they were going for. And I burst out laughing. I was laughing so hard. There were tears coming out of my eyes because just the visual and the fact that they decided to recreate water cooler chit chat sessions over Zoom as this like part of of the community, right? Like the startup world, this was a big part of it. It's water cooler I don't know, connections, I guess. Yeah. It's sweet. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying there is, but when you bring up like your experience in the corporate world, it it definitely, like you said, there's just certain elements and aspects of it that they just kind of, I don't know, it's part of an identity, right? Like a big picture for sure, identity. For sure. Like that's kind of like what you were saying before. Like when your identity, even outside the community, is so wrapped up in what you're you're learning there, whether it's a fitness community or a social media community or a startup job or whatever it is. Like that's when it starts to get like a little too culty for comfort, or that's one of the signs that it can be. And I think you know what's going on with so. Well, first of all, I'll say this: I think that the pandemic and all of our workplace interactions happening virtually over Zoom and stuff, it's really like shown a spotlight on how contrived some of these interactions are. And I've had a few different outlets reach out to me recently asking me to write like think pieces about cultish corporate jargon because they've also become like memes on TikTok and stuff like email interaction or whatever. It's like, what is behind this corporate sounding jargon. And I I have pieces coming out about that. And it's also in the book. So you'll have to stay tuned. Like what is going on with cultish corporate jargon. But I will say like, it's not dangerous in and of itself. Like saying things like ping me and we'll offline about this is not for my last email. (laughs) Yeah, it's not gonna get you. But I think what it can represent is like an, an echo chamber where the company at large is reflecting, you know, the higher ups, madness um, or whatever it is. And, and I think too, like sometimes people at the bottom who are really trying to gain power in, in the company will use some of this jargon without even knowing like what they're saying. And they don't feel the space or the freedom to be able to question it or, or ask like, what does this mean? They just conform instantly because they want to be perceived as a team player, an insider. They want to be able to access opportunities for promotions and things like that. And I think when you're in an environment that doesn't stand up to scrutiny, like where you don't feel like you're able to ask questions or be like, hmm, I don't know if I want to do that. Or why do we do that? Or can you explain this to me where you just feel like you have to conform or else? That's a red flag too. And that's how I felt back in the day when I was um, working my old jobs. I just felt like if you do not use this language, you're going to be clocked as like a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. And I found that kind of oppressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely like just strips away individuality for this greater good, which is ultimately like some kind of group and profit kind of thing. Profit, so, yeah. And I yeah. mean, like studies have shown that one in five CEOs exhibit psychopathic tendencies. Mm-hmm. So it's like, do I really want to like act and sound like the CEO of this company? Like, let me let me reevaluate that. And obviously, like our paychecks depend on our bosses a lot of the time. But like that goes to show why people like us decide to work for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, can you please make that a tune that I can use for like a TikTok or an IG reel? Like, please, I'm begging you. I will pay you for that. That was amazing. Work for themselves. I'm just like, I don't want anybody 
to boss me around in a potentially cultish way. And I don't want to boss around anyone either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay, real quick about the tune. Again, a couple weeks ago, I remember thinking to myself, I wish I had more friends that like randomly burst out into a song. And like, here you are. <laughs> like, here you are, angel from heaven above. <laughs> Manifest. Speaking of language. Manifest. Manifest. Speak your to being. <laughs> oh, I love that. Speaking of not sounding like our CEOs, <laughs> uh, my personal experience with WordSlut, funny thing is, Zoe told me about your book in January, which was approximately three weeks after I released an episode on this podcast called Communicating with Confidence. Now, I released that episode and I don't even think I've promoted it that much. And for whatever reason, it is one of my top downloaded ones, which almost makes me want to bask in shame knowing what I know now. And I've been meaning to do a follow-up episode to that and undo and tweak and perhaps add to some of the things I talked about there after reading your book. But I think now is the perfect opportunity to do that. The big message and the big takeaway that I got from WordSlut is that a lot of us are trained to almost sound more like men and particularly like straight cisgender white men generally in their like 40s or 50s and so in that episode some of the things that I talked about is you know perhaps removing our likes and our you knows and our I thinks and our sort of kinds of and all sorts of things from minimizers to what is that called up talk like where you where you kind of put a question mark at the end of everything you say so yep. Anyways, I, I just wanted to clarify that I released this because A, I'm a public speaker by trade. That's a lot of what I do. So of course, I'm constantly trying to improve my language and how I get a message across to an audience. And combined with my work for confidence, body confidence, and just empowerment in general. And I'm also a certified neuro-linguistic practitioner. So I'm all about how language form our beliefs. Anyways, all those came to me thinking that, okay, I'm going to empower people to maybe not apologize for the way they speak. And some of your approach, I feel like was much more obviously well-researched because this you're a sociolinguist, it's what you do, but also just more compassionate and empowering to women and marginalized groups and the style of language that we usually seem to look down upon. Could you speak into that message behind WordSlut as to like how our language combined with sex and gender, like how that, how our language up until this point is ultimately positioned in a way that pushes and oppresses women and a lot of other marginalized identities. Yeah, well, with the topic that you're talking about, it's true that throughout history, we've been conditioned to perceive the voices of you know, like middle-aged, mostly white cisgender men as the default voices of authority. We come to look down on exactly like you're saying, marginalized speakers, marginalized dialects, speakers that may not sound like perfect practitioners of standard English, but objectively and linguists know that certain language varieties are not better or worse than others. And the way that we perceive and critique a person's speech in everyday conversation has way more to do with our preconceived notions of that person, of that speaker, and less to do with the language itself. Linguists find time and time again that 
our culture's most innovative speakers, our linguistic innovators are young women who live in cities. And so if you want to know what language is going to sound like in 10, 20 years, just listen to a young urban female. But at the same time, like young women who live in cities are some of our most like hated people in this culture. Like we hate teenage girls. And so we make fun of how they speak, even though everyone comes around to speak just like them. And there is this amazing quote that a linguist who wrote for The New Yorker said, where he was just like, if older white men had been the ones to pioneer like, we'd be reading the like New Yorker. But instead, you know, some of these speech qualities that maybe were pioneered by young women, but maybe even weren't. They're just more noticed and reviled in young women's speech. Like, they're not inherently bad. In fact, linguists have done empirical studies to prove that these language qualities, whether it's hedges, like you're saying, the you knows and I means and I feel likes, or up top where you end a declarative sentence in the upward intonation of a question, or vocal fry, or saying like every other word, that's another hedge. We project our preconceived biases onto this language. And we do this with, like I was saying before, African-American English and all kinds of marginalized language varieties. But really, they're so useful. And so the, the book breaks down these studies to show that, you know, for example, there are actually six different forms of the word like, and they each serve a distinct function that is actually extremely useful um, and so when someone asks you or tells you you need to stop saying like so much, you can ask them, oh, really, which kind? The discourse marker, the discourse particle, the quotative like, the adjective, the verb, which one? Um, because they're homonyms and they're all really useful. That said, I, I don't think you should feel too bad about yourself and about the episode because it is so hard to notice these linguistic standards that our culture has perpetuated. And when you look at it, you'd think like, oh, yeah, telling women not to use as many hedges or not to use as much upspeak, like that very well in certain circumstances, like could help them get ahead. And I, I am not advising that like women in the workplace totally disregard that advice and go up to their bosses and are like, hey, mister, I read in this book word slut that my uptalk is here for a logical, provable, powerful reason. And you need to like adjust your like patriarchal viewpoints. That's obviously not <laughs> going to be appropriate. What I'm really encouraging people to do is reevaluate our perceptions so that we can make decisions better informed empowered decisions about how we wish to speak, how we wish to perceive the speech of others. And maybe in the meantime, like while you're an underling at your office or whatever it is, you might have to slightly accommodate to the linguistic preferences, aka prejudices of the people at the top. But then, you know, when you go back to your desk or when you go home, you don't have to waste time and bandwidth and hours questioning like, oh, am I inherently less worthy of authority because I say like a lot? Or like, do I really, really need to change who I am as a person? You don't. You'll know in the back of your head that you are fine. You're a linguistic innovator. And one day when you become the boss, you can resist perpetuating those same problematic standards to create a more accepting and empowering linguistic environment for the the women or whoever you're working with. And I think like, you know, it's not terrible advice, the advice that you're giving. It's just sort of what I call like pseudo-feminist advice. Um, and yeah. it is everywhere. And the other thing I want to say is that obviously this advice is context dependent, you know, like when I'm, for example, 
writing my books. I'm not going to use the same voice or the same register that I'm going to use when speaking out loud, speaking in natural conversation. I'm not going to put likes and hedges in my writing unless I'm doing it for some sort of effect or like stylistic choice. And the same goes if I'm giving like a formal speech. I probably, you know, would want my voice to be a little bit more like booming or resonant or whatever. Um, But in natural speech, even if it's in the workplace or whatever it is, that's really what more what I'm talking about. And or or when listening to podcasts, even, you know, like, so Mm -hmm. many of the criticisms of female podcast hosts, voices will be like, Oh, I, I can't even listen to this podcast anymore, because she says like so much. But if you listen to any, you know, young male podcast podcast host voice, they're using just as much like, just as much up talk, just as much vocal fry. It's just we don't have this microscope on their voices because the voice of like, you know, a 30 to 60 year old white man is our default voice of authority. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that after reading your book, it kind of creates this bipartial effect where it's like on one hand, I feel more confident and less hypercritical of myself and also of others. And instead, I'm just like more curious, like, especially when I'm consuming TikTok, and I see the way other people speak, like, for me, it's, it's more just like curiosity and interesting. And, and I'm still able to like absorb the message instead of like stereotyping and, and projecting my prejudices and scrolling by something just because I don't like, right, not that I don't like, but just because I have this certain perception of how people who speak should sound. And like you so eloquently point out is that most of those standards that we hold for a lot of voices are those of older white men. Yeah. And I mean, the crazy thing is, it's like these standards have been here for for centuries. And we as Americans, you know, we were talking about how we fetishize self-improvement and whatever, and climbing up the corporate ladder. We've been conditioned to think that speaking proper standard English. And again, these grammatical standards were created arbitrarily by a bunch of stuffy white grammaricans. Wow, that's funny. It's a portmanteau of grammarian and American. They were actually British. But these (laughs) these, uh, grammatical standards in standard English were created kind of arbitrarily by these stuffy white male grammarians during the printing press period when we first developed a need for a standardized language. And they pulled some language rules, grammatical rules from Latin and elsewhere. And they were just like kind of chosen, not because this language is inherently better, but because we needed a standardized form of English to print. The idea of speaking properly or um, according to a grammatical standard proves that you are educated and that you care about your future. And as Americans, we really value you know, the idea that if you want to be a CEO, you have to sound like one, you have to talk like one. And what is a CEO? It's a white man. And if you don't want to be a CEO, well, that's a moral failing on your part as an American, you should really want to climb the corporate ladder and become as successful and rich as you can. And you need to sound like the our image of authority if you want to do that. And so that's where a lot of these standards come from. Essentially, long story short, is that you don't want to think like a stuffy grammarian. You don't want to approach language like we all have that gotcha feeling of catching someone in a gr- grammatical infraction. Like, oh, you should have said whom, not who, or you should have said good, not well, or whatever it is. But, you know, grammar and morality or grammar and worth are not actually connected. You know, one of my favorite linguistics quotes is from this linguist, Deborah Cameron, is Hitler was no less a fascist because he could write a coherent sentence. Like, just because you can speak proper standard 
grammatically correct English doesn't make you a better person. And just because you speak a non-standard dialect doesn't make you a worse person or a less worthy person. So it's much better, like what you're saying, to approach language from a position not of curmudgeonly pedantry, but from a position of curiosity. You know, not you should speak this way. It's like, hmm, you are speaking this way. And why is that? I'm curious. What is language going to sound like in 10 years? And I think it's uh, it, it feels much better to approach it that way. 100%. One last question and, and thing I want to talk about. This conversation is so juicy. I don't want it to end. But another one of my big takeaways from WordSlut, and then we will tie it all together, is how a lot of our language, because it has been standardized by um, British men, back then, um, is also a lot from the perspective of men. So the example that you use is when it comes to sex. And I think this is so juicy. I want to read it straight out of your book. In my college sociolinguistic classes, I started learning about some of the subtle ways gender stereotypes are hiding in English, like how the term penetration implies and reinforces the idea that sex is from the male perspective, like sex is defined as something a man does to a woman. The opposite might be words like envelopment or enclosure. Can you imagine how different life would be if that's how we referred to sex? Can you speak more into that? And how did you even how did this even hit you? Because I, I have it highlighted <laughs> so that I can bring it up yes. to anybody and in, in just conversation because I want more people to know about this. Yes. So <laughs> I decided to include that fun fact toward the beginning of the book, just to get people's minds wrapped around this idea that gender stereotypes and problematic standards for how we should perceive men, women, people across the gender spectrum, and how they interact are kind of baked really secretly and uh, and, and subtly into the way that we speak every day, from insults to address terms to the ways that we talk about sex. And I have a whole genitalia slang chapter in the book that dives more, you know, into that. But um, that was just like, one of my favorite fun facts. And I, I don't even really remember like the specific day or class where I learned that. But it was just so fun to experiment with, you know, flipping this language on its head or reorienting the perspective, like, yeah, why are all our even slang terms for sex or mostly slang terms for sex? Why do they paint the act as like this violent and inherently penetrative thing? Why is a vagina or a vulva like I didn't even know until I was an adult that the whole thing was not called a vagina? Why are is the vagina always painted as this like vacant space waiting for a penis? Why is a penis always painted as some sort of weapon, you know, mm -hmm. like a rod of pleasure versus like a cum sponge or a meat wallet or whatever? It's just so unflattering and sexist when you really look at it. And it's like, and sex being painted as like boning or drilling or screwing. It's like, what if we called it sheathing? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm not, you know, I'm not proposing that we can really expect these terms to take over and that if we change our language, then the whole sexual dynamic between men and women and people along the gender spectrum, whatever, penises and vaginas are all going to change overnight. 
changing someone's language as a way to change how they think is not how it works. It has to happen the other way around. You have to already be on board with feminism and gender equality and that sort of thing before the language will really sink in. And so that's what I'm really trying to do is like highlight for people, you know, how sexism is baked into the language so that they can then make the decision, oh yeah, like I'm not okay with this language variety or this slang term or whatever it is. Like, and I want to change that to reflect my politics or my ethics. And so the the envelopment enclosure versus penetration idea was just like the perfect example of that. <laughs> I truly, I think I'm going to text my girlfriend and be like, I enveloped him <laughs> last night and just see what comes out of it just for shit. No, my, my friend will like say that now, like sort of half jokingly, but whatever. It's kind of like embedded into our everyday discourse. It's just like fun to play around with it. Why not? Like language is meant to be played with and experimented with. I love that. I really love that. I've noticed that in talking about word slut and your new book, Cultish, there is this like overarching theme slash kind of umbrella and they seem to kind of be very fluid into one another. Obviously, some part of that is both of it study linguists and just your perspective on it is so refreshing. What are you hoping that people take away from both of your books or you can address it like her book or if there's an overarching theme feel free to <laughs> express that too but what what's like the big goal I'm like such a little smart ass and I want to like create a generation of fellow smart asses you know I feel like there are so many under explained and seldom spoken about topics in our life that have a lot to do with language which as I mentioned a million times is like the lens through which I see the world and so many of our like frustrations and curiosities and and questions in life have to do with subtle things happening in our language. And uh, one of my favorite pieces of feedback that I'll get on WordSlut is like, you were able to articulate things I've always wondered about or things I've always felt irritated by. And you're able to like put a name to it, put a study to it so that I now feel empowered to like move through the world as a more empowered and compassionate person. And that's, you know, ultimately what I want to do. I want to like make kind of complicated linguistics and sociology slash psychology studies really accessible and juicy for people so that they can then feel empowered by that knowledge to move through the world feeling smarter, more empowered, more empathetic, all that stuff. Mm. Juicy is such a great word to describe your work. It truly is juicy. Just wait for um, cultish. <laughs> I, I truly cannot wait. Where can we find your books and find you on the interwebs? Well, Word Slut is available for purchase wherever you buy your books. It's in hardback, paperback, ebook, audiobook. I recorded it myself. Cultish is now available for pre-ordered. The, the book could already be out by the time this airs, but the publish date is June 15th. If this airs before that, please, please pre-order. And if it airs after, please, please buy it. Um, and uh, <laughs> that'll be in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. I'm also launching my own podcast called Sounds Like a Cult, which is about the everyday cults we all follow, the Soul Cycles, the CrossFits, the Royal Family, Bachelor Nation stan culture all that stuff and that is going to be premiering in 
the summer around now. It's called Sounds Like a Cult again. And then of course, people can follow me on Instagram where I post all kinds of fun linguistic, linguistic-y, culty things at Amanda underscore Montel. I hate that underscore, but uh, alas. <laughs> girl, you know, there's an A at the end of Mary's cup of tea, like an extra A. Uh, Drives me crazy. I've literally offered this girl money and she won't respond to my to my DM. So totally feel yeah. <laughs> Who is there an Amanda Montel without an underscore? I'm sure there is. I mean, it's not the woman uh, name in the world, Montel, but alas, I think there is. So, well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you are so easy to find because of you and the amazing work that you put out there into the world. Thank you so much, Amanda. This has been wonderful and empowering and juicy and everything in between. Thank you so much for having me. Love this. <laughs> And thanks everyone for listening. If you like this podcast episode, as always, take a screenshot of you listening and throw it up on your Instagram stories and tag both of us so that we can see because it truly just means the world and feels so connecting when we see that you're listening and that you enjoy the podcast. So I'll talk to y'all later. Bye. One last thing before we farewell, if you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, we would greatly appreciate if you could leave a short review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Your feedback helps the show so, so much. I absolutely love hearing from you. And as somebody whose love language is words of affirmation, your words mean the world to me. Just go to the Apple Podcasts app and scroll all the way down until you see the review section. And from there, you can just tap the star thing and leave your own review. Thank you so much for supporting me and this greater message of self-love for all. Also, feel free to send this episode to a friend and spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, make sure you pick up my book, which is available in stores and online worldwide. Just head to maryscupoftea.com slash book, and you'll find all the links to give yourself the gift of self-love. I love you all so, so much, and I will talk to you next time. Mwah.